I want to say thank you to our Slavic brothers and sisters who worship with us for that beautiful, uh, well-thought-out, well-prepared-for choir and the praise. Uh, there's, there's, you could just sense the Spirit of God in what they were doing and in their persons. And I want to encourage them as they put the time and energy. You know, folks, uh, we live in a multicultural age, and it is wonderful. But I do want you to see something. I do want you to see, and those two dozen folks who just walked off the stage here, how important their service to the Lord, the advance preparation, the presentation. In America, we've had everything so easy. We've endured little persecution. And the church has been on the periphery of our lives. Our world travel and the people that bring us to this, uh, bring the world to us in this congregational setting, enrich us and they challenge us. Let's pray. Lord, bless us now as we open the word. We want, Lord, to be available for your spirit to speak. So I'm praying, Lord, give us the humility to hear, the willingness to do, for perhaps these two things, Lord. Make this either a waste of time or the most important appointment of our week thus far. Guide us now. May we see Jesus and may we hear him. In Jesus' name I ask this. Amen. Thirty-eight years ago on this Sabbath after church, I had a nice meal with my girlfriend, and I knelt down in front of her and asked her if she'd marry me, and she said yes. Praise the Lord. The actual date was the 26th, so Thursday night we went out to eat, we enjoyed a little bit of time together after we'd been apart while I was at ministers' meetings. And uh, sometimes you eat a little more than you should and you eat a little later than you usually do. And so the next morning, it's like, well, I'm not really hungry. I'm not going to eat. The problem is my Friday schedule has it in such a way that usually I don't eat lunch until late. And it was about 2 o'clock. And as I was partway through my lunch, my wife's phone rings and someone near and dear to me was stuck out at the end of our driveway. Now, I love to help people, but I was hungry, and I wanted to finish eating, but I put my nice warm food aside, and I went out with my shovel, and we dug the car out. Came back into the church, uh, took advantage of some time here to be alone and do some different things, after worship on Friday night, last night, it's about time to eat, and I think I'm going to take the dog out briefly. I open the door, and I live kind of off the beaten path, and there's two headlights staring at me as I walk out. One dog goes rushing out barking. The other dog's on a leash, fortunately. And the uh, Amazon driver is stuck in my driveway. My supper is sitting on the table, nice and hot. 
He told me he called a tow truck. I thought to myself, if I was him, I'd like some help getting out of this jam. I've got an older truck that's four-wheel drive that's got a diesel engine in it. it doesn't, I don't start it very often, so I thought, well, I'll try to start it and see if it'll start. Stuck the key in, turned it over, and it, nothing. Lord, if you want me to help this person, start the truck. Nothing. I did that about four times. Finally, Lord, please start the truck. Black smoke blows out the tailpipe, and pretty soon it's sitting there rumbling, waiting to do what it does well. Cleared the snow off of it, backed it up to that uh, Mercedes-Benz delivery truck. His dispatcher said, be sure you don't hook the strap onto the, onto the axle. It's like, don't worry, I've got practice. I know what I'm doing. It was rear-wheel drive anyway. Reached in, hooked into the chassis. Turned the knob on my dash to where it said four instead of two. All four wheels now being directed by that diesel engine and transmission. Slowly, a little strain comes onto that big yellow cord. I tell him now, don't spin your wheels. We don't need you spinning your wheels. Just go easy on the gas. And slowly, I pulled him out of the snow. But his van was so light because it was empty at the end of the day that he didn't even think he could make it up and down the hills that are on my driveway. My driveway is about 900 feet long. So I said, fine, put your truck in neutral and I'll pull you down the valley and up the hill. He did. We got up to the top of the second hill. We released the straps. I visited with him for a little while. Three kids, married 12 years, now divorced. Just kind of the storyline of our American society that's plunging into the pit. Nice guy. Have you ever been stuck? Have you been so stuck? There are some people who drive four-wheel drive trucks who think they can't get stuck. That's not true. I've seen four-wheel drive trucks get stuck and the snow is holding them up while their wheels are spinning, all four of them. But I will tell you this, if you're stuck and you just sit there and spin the wheels, you'll be more stuck because slowly your car will settle into the mud, or the snow, or whatever it is that you're in. This morning, I want to remind you that when Christ came to this earth, he had a pretty big challenge. Slowly, the Israel church of old, the frog in the kettle, had become something very different than what it once was. Slowly, they got to the place where they could not even recognize the character of God. And very deliberately and carefully, Jesus began to engage them. Take your Bibles this morning and open up to the book of Matthew, chapter 15. Very carefully, and yet sometimes very boldly. Matthew, chapter 15. I'm going to skip some of it because... I'd like to keep this as an efficient experience as possible without rushing it. They didn't like it that they didn't wash their hands before they ate. They didn't understand Louis Pasteur 
and Joseph Lister. No, they didn't get the germ theory, but they knew there was in their culture a spiritual defilement if you didn't wash your hands before you eat. And they were criticizing Jesus for it. And Jesus said, well, there's a bigger problem. And that is because you have managed to turn the little into the big and the big into the little. You don't honor your parents. And if they say they'll dedicate the inheritance to the church, you don't have to take care of your parents in their old age. Verse 7 of Matthew 15, it says, you hypocrites... And I'm going to pause right there because some people would like to make Jesus only meek and mild. But Jesus was the consummate elder brother and father and mother, and he was unwilling to allow the organization to go so far adrift that it would twist. Jesus would say, you'll go a thousand miles to make a proselyte and you'll make them twice as much a son of hell as you are. Now, you need to be reading the Bible. Praise the Lord for the 5,000 plus chapters that are recorded over the first few weeks here. But you need to read it and let God be God. You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts, the concepts, the philosophies of men. After Jesus called the crowd to him, he said to them, hear and understand, it's not what enters the mouth that defiles the man, but it's what proceeds out of the mouth that defiles the man. So let's make sure we've got the picture real clear. He confronts the Pharisees. It's a public setting. It's not very pleasant. They go away mad. He calls the crowd to him and he says, listen, you've been taught wrong. I want you to understand how it works. It's not dirty hands that are making you bad people. It's what you think about and talk about that are reinforcing who you shouldn't be. And when the crowds are gone, the disciples come and they said to Jesus, do you know that the Pharisees were offended? when they heard this statement. Jesus didn't put his hand to his mouth in mock surprise and say, oh. But he answered and he said, every plant which my heavenly father did not plant will be uprooted. Leave them alone. They're blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, they're both going to fall into the pit. Now, being raised by effective parents gives you a preparation for what healthy relationships should look like. If you were raised by effective parents, they actually encountered you when you were on a journey of dysfunction because you see, sin is disobedience, disobedience leads to dysfunction, and dysfunction performed often enough makes you spiritually, relationally, or some other way diseased in mind or soul. And effective parents say, you know what? I've been over this road before, or I had a chapter like this with my parents. It's not going to work out in the long run, and I'm going to interject a shorter version of how to make this work by giving them feedback. If they resist my feedback, discipline or punishment. In other words, in a real relationship, loving people don't let people they love do the things that will ruin or destroy themselves. 
But we've watched a breakdown of American society where there are men and women no longer raising the children together. And if you're doing it on your own, more power to you. It could be divorce, it could be death, it could be a number of things. If you're doing it on your own, may the church come alongside you and help you. But I want you to know something. Every child needs the nurturing love of a mother and of course some nurture from dad too. But they also need the firmness of someone who can say, without being all tied up in an emotional knot, we don't do that, and neither will you. Because you see, there is this balanced dynamic that creates health and wholeness and actually makes people strong instead of weak and reminds them there's a God who can be their provision and that the world doesn't center around them and all these things, yada, 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 that allows somebody to actually grow up to be strong, healthy, hopeful, We've gotten to the place in our churches where we barely know each other. Sometimes we barely like each other. The love of Christ is not operative in our individual lives and our individual experience. Consequently, we are a collection of loosely confederated, not very unified, religious dysfunctionals. Now, it doesn't have to be that way. And by God's grace, as people make commitments to Christ, to his body, to their own families, there is a chance based on the willingness of the individuals that have collected themselves to grow, which is part of the reason why I think everybody's here this morning is that they really do believe they are to be blessed and be a blessing. They are to be encouraged. They are to be encountered. They are to be exhorted. They are to be rebuked. They are to be reproved. They are to be strengthened to actually make the journey to receive the blessings. Many of these blessings are conditional. Jesus practiced the ultimate parenthood, the ultimate brother and sisterhood, the ultimate, though he was not married, he related to his disciples in an exceptionally close way. He practiced the highest order of healthy, functioning family. And he loved his dear church, the church that had been in the wilderness, the church that he had led out of Egypt, the church that had established a dynasty, the church that had split after Solomon, the church that had been exiled, the church that had been restored. He loved his dear church, and he is the last best effort to get them unstuck. And before we come to the final straining and stretching of the cord, to lift them out of the ditch, he's going to strain and stretch it just a little bit, and he starts bumping into the leaders of the church, and what he says is, stop twisting the experience for the body by leading them the wrong way. Quit doing what you want to do, and start doing in precept and principle what the Word directs. And when the Pharisees are confronted, most of them go away. Some still hang around, if you read the narrative of John especially. Some still hang around. They were offended, Peter said. Yeah, they were. Do you know that, Jesus? If you're going to become Messiah, this isn't really the way to do it, is it? Except for one thing. When you sign up for fatherhood or motherhood, you sign up to get them through to the end goal, not to look like the winner in between the start and the finish. And so here's Jesus who realizes that if there's not some confrontation along the way, there's going to be implosion 
There's going to be a huge train wreck spiritually at the end, and for many there were. You know, over the last few years, our church has been locked in some dialogues, or lack thereof sometimes. But I want you to be able as individuals to keep a right spirit and to keep right principles and to keep right dialogues. If you have a right spirit and you have the right principles, you can have the dialogues. But if you deviate, and as we looked at last week, their pride was wounded, their anger was incensed, and it turned to hatred. This is what we looked at last week in the sermon. But if you have the right principles, you can stay in the right dialogues and you can be in the right place at the end. The right spirit, the right principles, and the right dialogue. The Pharisees did not have the right principles. They did not have the right spirit. And they could not stay in the dialogue, so they left. Jesus had the right spirit. He had the right principles. And he sometimes initiated the dialogues at great negative benefit to himself and his followers. And his followers weren't too excited about being dissed, mocked, scorned, and rejected by the organization. What I want you to understand is any husband and wife that quit talking are on the road to having a bad marriage. Any boss who loses his connection in dialogue with his key supervisors and his workers, anyone that abuses a friendship and there's not an effort to confront it and fix it, you're on the road to dysfunction and disease. Now, I, I want to say something that, taken out of context, could, could look and sound worse than it does and that it is. It doesn't matter if it's me and it doesn't matter if it's you. It doesn't matter if it's the conference president or the union president or the division president or the general conference president. There's not a one of us who's beyond making some mistakes. We do not, as Seventh-day Adventists, hold the doctrine of administrational infallibility. Amen. We do hold to the principles of kindness, truthfulness, and faithfulness to what we understand to be true. Amen. Jesus saw that the frog of the Israelite church in the kettle was about to turn belly up. In effect, he had an initial encounter and he said, come on out. Come on up. Let's go forward. Now, nobody should allow a critical spirit to develop in their hearts or minds. That's contradictory to the very essence of Christianity. We look through the eyes of Christ with hope. Having said that, nobody should be unwilling to have the dialogues with the right principles and the right spirit and the right words 
to where family problems can be fixed. When you don't, you institutionalize, you codify dysfunction. Now I want to remind you that dysfunction is a result of disobedience and it leads to disease. Look around at our society, friends. As real Christianity evaporates, tell me how many things are getting better. Do you know free societies, democracies don't work very well with people who aren't self-governed? Do you know the self-governance is a function of the Holy Spirit? Do you know when real religion evaporates out of your home or evaporates out of your church or out of your school or out of your society? The hopes are not bright. Practical godliness leads to some very uncomfortable moments. Jesus, did you know they were offended? You offended them, Jesus. Leave them alone, he said. Real resolution to problems only comes with honesty in the hearts of both parties. Take that to heart, man. Listen, woman. Remember, dad. Remember, mom. Remember, teenager. Remember, boss. You can't resolve a problem with a dishonest person. Honesty is a function of rightness with God. It's a function of humility. It's a function of an agreed sense that the principles and precepts of the Word are where true north is determined. Now, I'm going to very, very quickly recalibrate for those that would like to be recalibrated. You know, a compass, when it won't port north, has got problems. I'm going to go very fast. I'm not going to comment a lot. I won't even use all the slides I have. But I'm going to recalibrate north for anybody that wants it recalibrated. I'm going to take a minute and I'm going to talk about our society as it relates to the discipleship of our young. Let's go if we could bring it up. Children are a gift from the Lord. They're a fruit of a womb. It's a reward. Your kids are not your kids. If you're a teacher, those kids are a stewardship. If you're a parent, those kids are a stewardship. If you're a church member, our kids are a stewardship. The church has a special work to do in educating and training its children that they may not in attending school or any other association be influenced by those of corrupt habits. We try to minimize that student to student. We certainly seek to hire qualified, consecrated Adventist educators. The world is full of iniquity and disregard of the requirements of God. I put this slide up because I want you to see when it comes to the role of education, it's the church that has a special work to do. If any one of these little ones, those who believe in me, stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. You know, he was talking about little children, and yet the journey of misleading can transpire in any of the developmental years. God has appointed the church as a watchman to have a jealous eye over the youth and the children, as a sentinel to see the approach of the enemy and give warning of danger. But the church does not realize the situation. She's sleeping on guard. In this time of peril, fathers and mothers must arouse and work as for life. Work is for life, or many of the youth will be lost. Do you see this word right there? Forever. We're not living in a benign culture. 
We have abandoned Judeo-Christian values and said that right is wrong and wrong is right and our kids are being message bombarded. They are swimming in it. And it's the church's job to stop and say, Something isn't right. If the watchman doesn't stand on the wall and cry out, there's an enemy approaching, they won't be prepared when the siege is laid. They won't have the gates barred and shut. It's the church's job. It's the prophetic role. It's time to realize that there are many in the secular systems who understand how broken it is and that there's a need for major reform for the sake of the home and society. Now, that's not by Ellen White. That's a quote I inserted. Read the news, friends. The world is in despair. Many people have their kids in the public school and they're wringing their hands not knowing what to do. Why is it that all of a sudden it's the public school board settings that are in the new political battle, the new value battles area? It's in, it's in the public school boardrooms. The word education, she writes, means more than a course of study at a college. Education begins with the infant in the mother's arms. And while the mother is molding and fashioning the character of her children, she's educating them. Where do I want to start this morning? I want to start when I look at it's time, higher education at the crossroads. The highest education there is, is the education of the mother and the father given to the children. Let not home education be regarded as a secondary matter. It occupies the first place in all true education. Fathers and mothers have entrusted to them the molding of their children's minds. And I want to tell you what, the world would be happy. Satan would sit back in his easy chair and laugh if he could click through the channels some of your kids are watching and think, they've turned them over to me. Your kids don't need devices. What they need it's time to learn to think and connect and do. Mothers, have you neglected your God-given work, the greatest work ever committed to mortals? I just, I, I want to make sure we don't miss the line, the greatest work ever given to mortals. Have you refused to bear your God-given responsibilities? In the time of trouble just before us, when the judgments of God fall upon the impure and the unholy, will your children curse you because of your, that last word fits with the age. You pray lead us not into temptation. Then do not consent for your children to be placed where they will meet unnecessary temptation. Don't send them away to schools where they will be associated with the influences that will be as tears sown in the field of their heart. In other words, consider the environments they're in. Make good decisions. And then be careful lest you place them where the religious impressions they've received will be effaced and the love of God taken out of their hearts. Now, it's important for us to understand something here. From the time you hold that little baby in your arms to the time they graduate to holding their own little babies in their arms, there is an amazing journey of development. The development never ends, but there are some rites of passage in life, marriage being one, becoming a parent being a colossal one. There are some real things that change in the way a person looks at life when they hold in their hands their own little created life. But the idea here. You can't send your kids off to academy or send them off to college without some concern that the religious impressions that you've invested your life in could potentially be effaced. It's something to think about. 
If the influence in our college is what it should be, the youth who are educated there will be enabled to discern God and glorify Him in all His works. And while engaging and cultivating the faculties which God has given them, they will be preparing to render Him more efficient service. Our colleges, our universities are established to prepare missionary engineers and missionary educators and missionary doctors and missionary nurses and lawyers and, and ministers, of course. But whatever they are training to do, they are to be preparing to render him, capital H, Jesus, more efficient service. The youth are to be encouraged to attend our schools, which should become more and more like the schools of the prophets, not less and less. Of the greatest difficulties with it the teachers have to contend is the failure on the part of the parents to cooperate in administering the discipline of the college. This may be a very out-of-date statement, because we've taught our young people when they get to be college age, they don't need any discipline. And they've gotten the message. If the parents would stand pledged to sustain the authority of the teacher, and of course no teacher wants to be the only bad guy. I mean, this is what played out with Goodloe Bell and Alexander McLern over 100 years ago. Goodloe Bell at Battle Creek College in the late 1880s was trying to enforce the rules and, and the new president who some don't even believe he was an Adventist, was more of a go along to get along and let's all be happy. Uriah Smith, the editor of the Adventist Review, was a permissive parent, and pretty soon you had church leaders backing the president, Goodloe Bell was the bad guy, and everybody's learned the lesson since then. Nobody wants to be the bad guy who holds up the rules. If the parents would stand to pledge to sustain the authority of the teacher, the best gift you can give our teachers is to pray for them, <laughs> but then support them when they try to correct the mistakes of your children. Much insubordination, vice. There were problems back then too, and profligacy would be prevented. Parents should require their children to respect and obey rightful authority. Does this church believe this? Oh, I'm going to ask one more time. Does this church believe this? Okay. So the next time your child's in trouble, listen to what the teacher has to say. And don't consider you are to be the lawyer advocate for your child. Now, mind you, occasionally there are some dynamics that have somehow gotten so far out of whack that even an ordinary person would say something's off there. But I find more and more common, I had a conversation even this morning, I find more and more common that the child is now at the great disadvantage of the parent who cannot see objectively and it is hurting badly. It's not left to the children to judge whether the discipline of the college is reasonable or unreasonable. If parents have confidence enough in the teachers and in the system of education adopted by the school to send their children, let them show good sense and moral stamina and support the teacher in enforcing discipline. Okay, I have this slide up for a very important reason. It says teachers should understand these things and should instruct their pupils in these lines. Teach the students that right living depends on right thinking. And the last part of the sentence is why it's up there. That physical activity is, what's this word here? Can we say it together? Essential to this word, purity of thought. Do you know before the days of the flood, every thought of mankind was evil continually? That is, they reached a point of no return. I, I, I have this up here because we are prayerfully pressing forward with a school that will engage a whole lot more physical activity outside. Amen. 
And if you want your young daughters to marry pure young men, you're going to have to put them in environments that actually balance out the chemistry of the mind instead of making their brains easily hijacked by the temptations that are abundant. Physical activity is, is essential for the purity of thought. And we should be teaching our kids to love it, and it should be inculcated at every level of education because we have a moral implosion going on around us, and we have the secrets to fight back tucked away in all of these books. By the way, ignorance is deadly. <laughs> and I'll do one more little commercial. Back before you could do everything on the computer, we had what was called the Comprehensive Index to the Writings of Ellen White. And my dear Professor Carl Kaufman, head of the department back in the 1980s, said if you want to get a nice survey of what the Spirit of Prophecy says, just open these books up and read it. You're going to find that there's more on the work of education and youth than most other topics. The reading of God's Word will not fascinate the imagination and inflame the passions like a fictitious storybook or video. But this is what it does. It softens, this is the Bible, it soothes, it elevates, and it sanctifies the heart. How integrated should the Word of God be into our homes and our schools if we're hoping to take our children with us and not leave them behind on planet Earth? Some may ask, how are such schools to be established? We're not rich. But if we pray in faith and let the Lord work on our behalf, He'll open a way before us to establish small schools and retired places for the education of our youth. Now, the last part of the quote is why I have it up again. Not only in the Scriptures. In other words, that's the preeminent focus. And in book learning. But in many lines of manual labor. I had a woman send me a text of a project they're doing in their home remodeling. And in the text between the services, one of our members, she said, my mother believed in this kind of education. May the Lord rise up and bless that mother. Because I want to tell you, this woman, who's one of our members, is not easily going to be taken advantage of by some contractor in regards to pricing or anything else. And they're going to have a different sense of confidence. No education can be complete that does not teach right principles in regard to dress. That's an interesting statement. Without such teaching, the work of education is too often, these are ugly words, retarded and perverted. The education is retarded and perverted. Love of dress and devotion to fashion are among the teacher's most formidable rivals and most effective hindrances. Nobody wants to say that they have an idolic, idolatrous relationship with the love of dress. But it might involve a few of those moments where somebody says, I'm offended. The love of dress endangers the morals and makes the woman the opposite, could say man, of Christian lady or manhood, characterized by modesty and sobriety. Pride and extravagance in dress are sins to which women are especially prone. Take it up with the prophet who was a woman, not the preacher. Hence, these injunctions relate directly to her. 
of how little value our gold and pearls are costly array when compared with the meekness and loveliness of Christ. A modest, godly woman will dress modestly. That should be up for a discussion in every home and every marriage so that it doesn't have to be discussed so much at church. A refined taste, a cultivated mind, will reveal in the choice of a simple, appropriate attire. We must pray as we have never prayed before that God will keep and bless our children. I'm going to skip through these. I'll do this one. Parents generally put too much confidence in their children. For often when their parents are confiding in them, they're concealing iniquity. If that was true a hundred years ago, how much more true is it when as you walk into the room, a, parent, a child can with a flick of the thumb be in a different world than they were when you weren't there? I wish I didn't have to agree with this statement, but after raising four kids, I found out that I believed in them a lot more than I should have at times. If there was ever a statement to caution putting a device in someone's hands prematurely, it's this one. Our kids are not to be at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil every minute of their life. Think about it, parents. They shouldn't be listening to the serpent talk. To Christ enter our institutions for the education of youth, he would cleanse them as he cleansed the temple, banishing many things that have a defiling influence. Many of the books which the youth study would be expelled. Our people are now being tested as whether they will obtain their wisdom from the greatest teacher the world ever knew or seek to the God of Ekron. Let us determine that we will not be tied by so much as a thread to the educational policies of those who did not discern the voice of God and will not hearken to his commandments. Now the rest of these statements I'm going to go through very quickly. They are not from the spirit of prophecy, they are from me. I believe they are biblically and principally established and you get to decide if you should think about them anymore. It's time to understand that the very culture we are in is warring against the eternal welfare of our children. It wasn't so much that way when I was a kid. There's no way to be true. It's time to realize there's no way to be true to our message and escape the scorn of the world. Teach your kids this. They need to know it. You need to know it. Because your journey of truthness, being a man or woman of page 50, education, page 57, you're going to get some of this. And sometimes the scorn will come from the inside. It's time to recognize that we are the frog in the kettle. It's time for parents to recognize that there is no salvation in the age of Babylon except for the young people who are completely unembarrassed of their identity in Christ. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego decided they were going to be connected to their old identity even in the new country. If your kids are embarrassed to talk about Jesus, if they don't want to sing, start praying, trying to figure out where the spiritual short-circuiter is in their life. It's time to recognize that we have no customers but we do have constituents. 
Every person who walks through the doors, through our doors, should make a covenant to support and partner with the Christian principles and the mission of our schools. We don't have customers. My children were not customers. Our church schools have no customers. We are not a business model working to get money. We are a mission model working for the glory of God and the salvation of our kids and the saving of the world. There are no customers. The business model will not work for us. You get a parent that's been out of shape, they're not a customer. They're a ministry partner with you to disciple that child, to win them to the kingdom and save them from the lies of their age that they're in, which are so easy to believe, just like the snake in the tree. It's time for a serious audit of our institutions to see if they're meeting the objectives and the goals for which they were established. That's not an invitation to criticism. But of course, some of the things we discover might not be well received, but we should show honor and dignity in the process, but in honesty, we should prayerfully sit down and say, are we who we were chartered to be? Are we who we want to be? Are we going where we want to go? It's time to ask ourselves why the manifold blessings of God are not upon us. God told Joshua, don't turn to the left, don't turn to the right. Nobody will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. I will prosper you in everything we do, you do. Psalm 1, don't sit, don't walk, don't stand, don't talk with the ungodly, and you will prosper in everything you do. When our churches are dying and our schools are struggling, we have to ask ourselves, is there something we're doing to rob ourselves of the glory God wants us to have as we leave Egypt to get ready to go for the promised land? Because I want to tell you, even the world can recognize the blessing of God when it exists. It's time we stop turning our heads the other way when we hear of wrong and false teachings in regards to science and creation, gender and identity, and morality and human relationships. Kindness should be the culture of Seventh-day Adventist Christians. But just like we sang in our opening hymn, at the cross, grace and law kissed. Law If Adam and Eve had obeyed God's law, we wouldn't be in this mess. Law is a form of grace when there's no condemnation. Once you're in the condemned dynamic of a sinful nature, the law is constantly condemning you. But there's a way for us to be in Christ and our institutions to be in the Spirit to where we can do this. We can get kindness. We can do justly, love, mercy, and walk humbly. We can get them to come together. But I'll tell you what. You cross your eyes in regards to how the world came into being how you were made, or how the family is formed, and you are on the road to some of the most serious mental health issues that exist because there is a God, and the Holy Spirit speaks whether a thousand people lined up behind you and said, I'm okay, you're okay. It's time to reinstate the gospel on our Seventh-day Adventist campuses, especially in regard to gender identity and morality. What that means is that ministries like coming out should be able to lovingly proclaim the gospel of what the Lord can deliver you from without unnecessarily wounding. I'm going to say it again, without unnecessarily. 
If you don't have compassion in your heart for people who struggle with gender dysphoria, if you don't have compassion in your heart for people who struggle with same-sex attraction, you're not very in touch with your humanity. I'm not saying you struggle with it, but you struggle with something else. It is compassion. But that compassion is not so weak and vacillating that it cannot tell you where the high ground is and where freedom and liberty can be found. Sin is disobedience, sin is dysfunction, and it is disease. I've already spent time on that. It's time that we communicate to our social scientists and psychological scientists that the Bible is the final word on human identity and morality. It doesn't matter how much data is out there. Pretty soon we're going to have a generation of data. I listened to a fellow pastor in our community say that Generation Z is the first generation that self-identifies as having mental health issues. It's time for people with the largest estates and financial means to make certain they're supporting what they think they are supporting. And that it's time for those in development to be certain they are not selling a false bill of goods. There are lots of little old ladies raised in a different generation that believe categorically what Adventist education meant and they give their money for that. We don't have permission to deviate from the precepts and the principles of Scripture. And who would want to put our kids' feet on the path to self-chosen self-destruction? In other words, we're going to have to be a little bit more aware. It's time for administrators to realize they are pastoral administrators. Their role model is not the administration model of the world, but the shepherd care that protects the culture and the goals of the institution, I would add, as described in the Bible and the spirit of prophecy. And it's time for board members to better understand the institutions they give oversight to. It's time to remember that our institutions are not the administration, but the institution is a collection of the body of Christ, students, faculties, parents, church members. It's time for us to remember that in 1890 they closed, well, it wasn't 1890, but it was in the 1880s, early 1890s. Battle Creek College was actually closed for a year. It was so much of a mess that they said, we will not be having school here next year. It's time to confront child-centered parenting. Those have coddled their children and left them unready for the academic rigors of college or, as we noticed before, the voice of authority in other people. I've heard, I have heard our own professors tell me how at the college level, parents have called up and badgered the professors when they did not give their children the grade that they thought they deserved. Have mercy is right. The next time a doctor gets a scalpel out, I want to know they actually were well-trained, not well-encouraged. It's time to begin weaning ourselves off the government dole, which means that we will offer education in a more austerity model. I could say more, but I won't. 
It's time to hold faculty accountable when they no longer support the belief system of the church. And it's time to remember that the Christian aim is unity in diversity. That unity can only be achieved through love, honesty, forgiveness, and coming together in Christ and in his mission. The world's version of diversity doesn't work. It just makes everybody more angry with each other. Turning a blind eye doesn't work. Prayerful dialogue does if we have honest people at the table. We can't do things the way the world does things and expect we're going to produce sanctified, justified, and someday glorified children. Why do, we have a, why do we have a shortage of people that will teach? And why is it that there are very few young males or even females that are choosing the gospel ministry? We failed in a number of places. And it starts at home. No, you're not going to make as much money doing what I do for a living. But you still may have been called to do it. Yes, it's going to be five times harder than the guy who makes five times more. But you're still called to do it. Young preacher, young teacher. It then moves to the society of the church and the school. The highest education is spirit-filled mothers and fathers. Everything else should rally around their discipleship. But when they're off, somebody needs to have the courage to say, you know what? He'll be okay. She'll be all right. When I was in the sixth grade, I was walking across the parking lot of the public school I was in. It was a cold, probably January day like this. I turned around. That's the phrase I want to end this message on. I turned around. Now, I can't overly moralize my turning around. I don't remember what I was turning around for. But I was walking this way and decided I needed to walk this way. Anybody that listens to me today and wants to turn around, they should understand it's going to be very, very difficult. It's going to require much prayer and much patience and much dialogue. As I turned around, there was another sixth grader who was about as tall as I was and much stockier. He was probably the heftiest, and I don't mean fat, I just mean built sixth grade boy in the school. His name was Jody Sutton. I remember the day distinctly. And as I turned around, my ears had not picked up the auditory messages that somebody was running up behind me. He was going to run right by me. I turned around and he slammed into me it broke the two front teeth, my two bottom front teeth, it broke them off. They flew out of my mouth and landed in my hand. 
And the very first breath I took told me I had a big problem. Because that cold Illinois air coming across my two broken teeth put me in immense pain. We had fried chicken that night. I'm a vegetarian now, but I wasn't then. And you know, carnivores need both the upper and the lower front teeth to eat, at least fried chicken. <laughs> I couldn't enjoy it because the flesh of the chicken on my bottom teeth created pain where there was only supposed to be pleasure. But to get to the tongue, I had to get the teeth on the game first. We were poor, and I never went to the dentist. And for 40-some years, I went through life with those two teeth broken off. Eventually, they quit hurting. Turning something around is an experience that meets with the resistance of evil force. Jesus tried to turn around his church, and they put him on a cross. Martin Luther tried to turn around his church and they declared him a heretic. Huss and Jerome were put in jail. As we heard during religious liberty, Latmer and Ridley were burned at the stake. So was Huss and Jerome. Tyndale was exiled and the list could go on and on. It's time that from the home to the church to the school, from kindergarten to university, we stop and ask ourselves, is there any change of direction I should make? This is a book called Child Guidance. I'm not going to do anything embarrassing like ask how many people have read it. It's old and it's ugly. But it's got some pretty colors in it. Blue, red, colored pencil marks. Ignorance at this age is death. The new versions are much prettier on the outside, but I'm not trading my old version in because I've highlighted the things I need to know about me and my family. Jesus can turn it around for you, for us, as he hung on the cross Two men cursed him. Two men. And finally one said, this isn't right. And he said to Jesus, I'd like to turn around. Agonizing. He can't breathe. His nerves are on fire. His back is lacerated. His sun is baking. He's, his skin is baking. He's thirsty. But that man who said, I'd like to go a different direction, he said, you can.
we can too. If anything that was on these screens today says to you, you need to recalibrate, turn to the one who can recalibrate head and heart and action. We, above all people, should show the fruit of the blessing of God. When we don't, we should humble ourselves, confess our sins, and ask the Lord to heal our land, and He will. May God help us. No critical spirits, just kindness and honesty, courage, compassion, firmness, resolute commitment to the law of liberty and the Lord of life. Amen.